the Bible is a book full of unsolved mysteries. Are you looking to finally make sense of it all? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan. John F. Kennedy once said, Israel was not created in order to disappear. Israel will endure and flourish. It is the child of hope and the home of the brave. It can neither be broken by adversity nor demoralized by success. It carries the shield of democracy and honors the sword of freedom. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. And folks, we thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts via email, messaging us at ChristianQuestions.com, Facebook, and our website chat board. So, Jonathan, what is our topic for today? Well, Rick, our question is, is Israel a thorn in the side of the world? And our theme text is found in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 3. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. So it's about Israel. Now think about Israel. It is a country that only covers about 21,000 square kilometers, not even in the top 150 countries in the world, about the size of New Jersey and houses about 8.3 million people, which figures to be about 11 one-hundredths of a percent of the world's population. Yet for its insignificance, Israel is always in the news and always seems to be in trouble. Why are there so many questions about and issues with this tiny nation? Is Israel really occupying land that is not theirs? Is Israel really mean and over-the-top harsh with their neighbors? Or are there important details about the constant conflicts that we're always missing? Should we just be fed up with what Israel does and what they stand for? Or should we be respectfully looking up to Israel for what they do and what they stand for? And Jonathan, these are a lot of really hard questions, right? They really are, Rick. So we brought in the reinforcements to help us answer all these questions. With us today on today's podcast is Len Grice. Len, good day. How are you, sir? Hello, Rick. Hello, Jonathan. Nice to be with you again. And uh, yeah, you are with us again. You have been a, a frequent guest in the past with us, Len. But just for those who've not heard of you before, who are you? Where are you from? And just a little bit of background on, on you and you know why this subject of Israel. I'm very interested in Israel as a as a student of the Bible, and that's, of course, why I'm here. Uh, mainly, I've been a Bible student for well over uh, 50 years, and I serve in two different Bible study classes. Uh, I live half of my year in Philadelphia, and I live half my year in Phoenix, Arizona. I've uh, retired nine years ago, and since then, I've had a number of opportunities to travel around the world and meet with other Bible students around the world, and uh, including in Australia, throughout Europe, uh, with international groups. Uh, my background professionally was as a, uh, I was in the corporate finance area for many years, 
and uh, worked for two Fortune 500 companies and had an opportunity to really get exposed to the world of finance, wherever it was. And as a result of that, involved in much of political activity as well as communications and the world of Wall Street. And you, you learn a lot during that time. And I hope to now apply it to knowledge, uh, understanding the scriptures a little better. And my high interest now is really Israel is one of my favorite topics. And so as uh, things have developed recently with Israel, we asked you to come on and, and just give us some insight into this whole subject. So again, our, our, our main question is, is Israel a thorn in the side of the world? Folks, in this segment, we're going to get our bearings on the latest events within Israel that have yet again caused worldwide reactions. And then coming up later in the podcast, we're going to look at one of the things specifically is who the Palestinians are and trace what land should belong to whom. So you really want to stay with us for that coming up. But right now, Len, let's get started with the current events, with where things are right now uh, and what's happening. We now have an American embassy to Israel in Jerusalem, and we also have many dead Palestinian protesters. How did these events unfold? Do we need to do some finger pointing? Is there a connection? Is there a not? Just give us some of the current event background to get us started. Well, it Having been to Israel and seeing the land and the people there, uh, there really is a great flavor in Israel for the land. And the land is very important to the people of Israel. And Jerusalem especially is a very important country or city within there. Uh, they have a real passion for that. And the fact that the U.S. Embassy now has moved to Jerusalem uh, after a 1995 decision being deferred for almost for over 30 years, almost 30 years now, 20 years, 23 years, it's finally done. I think that that has really resurrected a lot of feelings that were there because so many felt they had no right to do it, to have Jerusalem as their capital. And that I sort of sat back and chuckled during that whole time when U.S. President Donald Trump decided we're going to do this finally. Uh, There's no reason not to. It's the 70th anniversary of Israel's founding, but it certainly caused a great deal of turmoil. And that scripture that Jonathan read, Zechariah 12, 3, uh, it will come about in that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone. We could say that's today uh, because it certainly is that issue around Jerusalem has been a real sensitive one. The notion, however, of the U.S. recognizing Jerusalem sort of made me uh, laugh because as Israel's capital, uh, don't they have a right to decide their own capital? They're a sovereign. They're a democratic country. It's like someone coming in here and saying, well, I'm sorry, you can't can't have Washington, D.C. as your capital because we don't think it should be. So, so, so let, let's yeah. just pause there for a second because you're right. You know, Israel is a sovereign nation, has been for a very long time. And, you know, what business should it be of other countries where it designates its capital? You said that a law was passed in the United States in 1995. Right. To, to, 1995, sure. Go ahead. I mean, to, 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 to move the, the embassy, but it never happened. What, what was the, why the 23 year delay on that? Well, I think a lot of it was political because even though it was voted to do that 95, there was an option given by the U.S. Congress for the president to defer that action. 
And I think because of circumstances, they felt and were advised, well, we, we're not going to do it because things could happen uh, if we move from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. So every president that we had from 95 on, three presidents waived uh, in the name of what they called national security because it would could have ramifications on the United States if we did that. My point is not moving that embassy had did not prevent something like 9-11 right. from happening in right. 2001. So I think that was really the reason for many is it was claimed that, well, we would be exposing ourselves to great danger if we did that. Now, let me ask you, the, the administration before this, and we're not going to get into politics, and, you know, it's, it's right. irrelevant, no. Democrat, Republican, we don't care. Right. But the right. previous administration, though, seemed to be going in the opposite direction than this, with, uh, with a resolution in, in, in 2016 with the UN uh, Security Council. What, what was that about? And, and folks, we're laying the groundwork for where we are and what it all means to us now. So, so again, where were we with the UN Security Council just a couple years ago? For December, it was actually Christmas Eve of 2016, the UN Security Council passed a resolution that condemned Israel as an illegal occupier, they call it, of the West Bank, which we know in the older days as as Judea, Samaria. Uh, And they claimed that uh, all the land that was acquired from Jordan between 1948 and 1967 should right, rightfully not be part of Israel. And the thing that happened after that uh, resolution was passed, the United States has always supported Israel in the UN. It has always voted against resolutions that condemned Israel. But for the first time in the history of the UN, the U.S., abstained from that vote, despite Israel's pleas. And abstaining, of course, you know when you abstain, it's the same as a no vote. Right. So right. even though they didn't vote for it, not voting against it because the UN, because the U.S. is part of the Security Council, it really allowed that to pass. And China, France, Russia, and the U.K. all voted in favor of it. And with, with the U.S.'s abstention, they're the fifth country that allowed that to pass. And so what they did with that is lock Israel, as far as the UN was concerned, into the 1948 line that was drawn after the armistice of the war. Uh, and it declared Judea, Samaria, and East Jerusalem as occupied land that belonged to the Palestinians. So so when you have that, what you have then is those Jewish settlements that were settled in these areas for years and years and years after they literally won the land in war uh, end up, according to the United Nations, being looked at as criminals, correct? Oh, yeah, that's absolutely right. If you, I've been to the Jewish quarter, and if you walk through the Jewish quarter, it's such an active area, but basically those residents are now considered as criminals, right? And that was the strange thing. That was very interesting what uh, the outgoing Secretary General Ban Ki-moon said about what happened with that vote. He said, decades of political maneuverings have created a disproportionate volume of resolutions, reports, and conferences criticizing Israel. 
we must never accept bias against Israel within UN bodies. That was his outgoing statement, but he saw it for himself because almost half of the UN Human Rights Councils have centered on condemning Israel. So, and, and it really comes down to land issues, and, uh, and, and we will get into some of the, the, the people treatment issues as well as we go through uh, this podcast. Uh, Len, we need to, to pick up our pace a little bit here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so just a quick summation. What, so the reaction since the May 14th move of the embassy, what, just very, very quickly, what has it been? Okay. It, well, of course, it got international condemnation. Pre- previous presidents, everybody had refrained from opening it. Israel's foreign ministry said uh, all 86 countries with uh, diplomatic missions in Israel were invited to the embassy. But Palestinian leaders see East Jerusalem as their capital. The Cairo-based Arab League, which is 22 member states, urged the international community to oppose what it considered was an unjust decision and the ongoing occupation that called the embassy relocation a big attack on the feelings of Arabs, Muslims, and a statement from the United States Nations, even on Twitter, uh, talked about the shocking killing of dozens of hundreds of Israelis, uh, of uh, by Israelis, of those in Gaza. When it was all said and done, Hamas admitted that 50 of the 62 that died in that border attack after the declaration and after the move were affiliated with the terrorist organization and even showed and produced them Hamas's printed orders that those who approached the fence uh, could have made better, uh, somewhat better had they been more widely reported. So they were really focused. 50 to 62 were known terrorists that they engaged to attack. Okay, so wait, I, I want I want to back up because I want to make sure this is this is clear. So on one hand, you have the establishment establishment of the embassy, the American embassy in Jerusalem. On the other hand, you have these uh, these uh, these these demonstrations. Yep. Point blank question: Were those demonstrations aimed at the U.S. embassy being put into Jerusalem? No. Okay. That so, was not aimed. It was. An excuse. Okay. So what were they for then? What were they for then? What was what? What what were those demonstrations for? Well, those demonstrations are, were really part of the ongoing activity against Jerusalem itself and against Israel. The embassy was just another excuse for the terrorist activity to continue and gave them a reason. It was really for the media. And when you (laughs) pictures on the media, it was to create a fear in the world. And uh, and those demonstrations were happening weeks before the embassy thing was happening. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it started as soon as the announcement was made that they were going to do it. And the moving of that was done, but nothing was done when the other five or six countries also moved their embassies. That's a strange thing because the U.S. was such a focus with this that we had uh, a big backlash. And of course, the media loves to cover current president and any activity that reports negative. And that was certainly a big negative that day when you saw everything crashing. It looked like it was crashing in Israel. Mm -hmm. And in reality, it was just really terrorists and their ongoing activity. Okay, And even some of the pictures they showed of people dying 
uh, some were found later. Those were pictures that were shown in places like Pakistan. Oh, for Pete's sakes. So, so to, to wrap this up, you have this thing happening, this American move of the embassy to, to Jerusalem, and the, the demonstration that was going on was actually an annual demonstration, right? Uh, the Hamas March of Return. That has been happening for years and years and years and years. So just that demonstration happening again, they just got more excited this time. But the right. bottom line is you have terrorists are the ones that are being killed. Now, look, a human life is a human life. I get that. But what we want to make, make clear here is the, is the unfair representation of what was really happening. When you say, oh, these poor Palestinians who are dying in, uh, because they're facing armed Israeli soldiers, oh, these poor people. Well, wait, these poor people are terrorists. They're going out to try to kill. That's what they do. And that's what Hamas told us they were. But we don't get to hear that. So, right. Len, in starting with this, 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 this recent event, uh, and we're going to wrap up this first segment, you know, we're, we're starting with this because it's fresh in everybody's mind. And when you look at Israel and you look at the world, you, you do see that Israel's kind of a thorn in the side of the world, don't you? Yeah, Israel's rapid fall from being commended to being condemned. Uh, it's once again being treated like a toy in the world. Yeah. And it's a thorn in the world's side. And the question is, why should anyone care about that little country in the Middle East? You look on a map of the world and you need a big arrow pointing just to see where it even is. So Israel gets all this incredible attention on a worldwide stage. And you got to ask yourself why. So look, in the eyes of many in the world, Israel is a real problem. True. So how did all this come about? How did Israel come to the land that they, in our modern times, call home? How long has it been fought for? We're podcasting live every Monday night from 8 to 9.30. You can talk to us direct through our chat at ChristianQuestions.com. We also welcome your comments or questions any day of the week. Just hit the Contact Us button. We're now out of the starting gate. Let's pick up the pace for tonight's topic. Putting the questions of ownership and struggle into their true historic context sets the stage for being able to begin to understand the real issues with Israel in our present day. As we shall soon see, the history that seems to often be assumed and the history that actually happened do not always agree. We have with us today on our podcast special guest, guest Len Grice. He is a student of scripture, has been for many, many, many years, uh, is very uh, interested and in, in, um, informed on the happenings uh, of Israel, both on a political level as well very much on a scriptural level. And that's really where we want to get to go now. We looked at the political environment in the first segment. Done with that. We'll be touching on that as we go through from a historical standpoint. But Len, right now, let's talk about facts versus fiction in the Middle East. And to do that, when you sent me notes to, to work from, you, you put this timeline together that I thought was actually, it was brilliant because it lays out what happened in Israel and who the players were for a long time. We're talking thousands of years. And the, the first point on your, on your, your, your uh, timeline here is the Middle East today is in conflict that now spans for three millenniums, 3,000 years of conflict. 
Yeah, it is 3,000 years, yes, but it's, you know, more recently in everyone's mind, in the last 300, it's been big, but you're right, we can trace back all the way for 3,000 years. So let's go back, Len, on your on this timeline, and, and folks, if you don't subscribe to Seek Your Rewind, the full edition, please do so. It's a free service. You can get it at ChristianQuestions.com or through the Christian Questions app. Um, you want to see this, because it really helps you see what happened when? So, Len, we've got a lot of pieces of this timeline, so let's just walk through it with us and tell us where this story began, and it will help us to understand when Israel was planted in that land and many of the things that happened afterwards. Go ahead. Sure. If we start with Abraham, both sides claim Abraham as their father, the Jewish and Arabs, and that's, you know, we're going back to around 2000 B.C., uh, for the time when Abraham appears on the scene. Now, Abraham wasn't Jewish. There wasn't a Jewish nation at that time, but it came through his children. Uh, and the, the children of Jacob was one of his children uh, in 1575 BC. The children of Jacob, uh, one of the descendants of Abraham, enters Canaan, which today is the land of Israel. And uh, that really... Uh, started when they came into there after the exodus right. uh, from Egypt. So 1575 B.C. is BC, when... Yeah, we, and we use B.C.E. rather than B.C.E. We're going before Christ, right? right. So 1575, right. So we go back, uh, you know, to that period of time. Then we jump ahead. When, after they were in this land of Canaan, which was the promised land that we'll talk about in the one of the segments... Uh, a first temple was built in Jerusalem, and that happened with Solomon. King Solomon, one of David's sons, uh, built that temple in somewhere between 1000 and 925 B.C. That temple was built. And that temple uh, stood for some 300 years, and then Israel, uh, because of their sins against God, were allowed to be taken captive into Babylon. They were captured by and taken by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon, and that happened between 607 and 587 BC, where they were they were never entirely out of their land, and that's an important point, Rick. Even though they were taken captive, they were still in that land of Israel or the land of Canaan. At that point, there were still remnants there. Mm -hmm. After they were taken captive to Babylon, they were there for some 70 years. And then consistent with even Bible prophecy about that. And you remember Daniel himself talked about that, uh, prophet Daniel. And the temple then was rebuilt, and Daniel saw that vision was rebuilt in uh, by the order of the Persian king Cyrus, who had overcome Babylon. That was in 537 B.C. that that order to go back and rebuild the temple. And things were kind of copacetic from that point on until the, the first uh, century B.C., when in 63 B.C., the Romans came and occupied Israel. And after the Romans occupied Israel, that's when we get up to the time of Christ, and we know that that was a big part uh, of Jesus' day when the Roman occupation was there. Okay, so that, just just let me yeah. just put, put the numbers in place, because when you get to Jesus' time— the children of Jacob entered Canaan in 1575 BC. So you got about 1600 years before Jesus that Israel is in the land of Israel. 
and they're continually for that 1600 year period of time. That's right. Okay. So they ahead. were there. Yep. And then, uh, in, uh, once the Romans occupied Israel, we know, and after the death of Jesus, some 37 years later in 70 AD, Herod, uh, Herod's temple, which was the second temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and rebuilt. What we see now in Israel, the wall that stands on the outside is part of that second temple. Uh, so that was, that happened in 70 AD and that really kind of wiped out Israel's, Israel's presence in that period. Although there was still a remnant for another 65 years until 135 AD and there was a revolt. Bar Kokhba revolt, revolt, and Jewish nationalism really then came to an end. That was the end of that period of time. And then they began, that land was occupied then by many other occupiers during that time. Although we can, we can surmise there was a bit of a presence always there with some kind of a remnant somewhere around the land. Okay. And it was later then. Now we get into the Arab world when Muhammad formed the religion of Islam in 613 AD. So it's almost 500 years later when we find the beginning of Islam. And some 25 years later in 638, 635 to 638 is when the Muslim uh, conquest of what was then called the Holy Land took place. And what we see today, the Al-Aqsa Mosque was built uh, there. And the, they were only there really in that land uh, for about 22 years that time, although they, the Ottomans and the claim of the Muslims' presence there happened all the time after that until 691 A.D. when the Dome of the Rock uh, was built in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. Okay, so we've got uh, several things happening. You're up to 691 A.D., and then in this timeline, there's this blank spot until we go up to 1878. So you jump ahead, uh, you know, many, many, you know, 1,200 years or so. Uh, be, to, to just set the scene for you've got that long time of really nothing happening, just want to play a soundbite from uh, Made in Israel, uh, agriculture from CBN.com, and it's a quote from Mark Twain, and he had been in Israel, uh, I think it was in 1867, and it's an interesting quote, Len, that, again, we're going to have to, to move, uh, move our pace up a little bit here, but it's, it's an interesting quote that gives a flavor for what it, must, what it looked like, actually, at that time. So let's listen to this, Len, and then we'll continue going through the, the, the time periods. Okay. In 1867... Mark Twain toured the land of Israel, known back then as Palestine. Here's how he described it. A desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but is given over wholly to weeds. A silent, mournful expanse. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes, desolate and unlovely. Today, Mark Twain wouldn't even recognize this land. Out of rocky soil, out of swamps, and even out of deserts, Israelis have created gardens, vineyards, and farms with some of the most innovative techniques in the world. 
So you've got that look in 1867 of desolation. And there are several events uh, on your timeline, Len, that go from 1878 um, all the way up to uh, uh, 2003. Zip through the 1878 to 18 uh, to 1987. Just kind of list them off, just to give us a flavor of the the, the amount of happenings that made it so Israel w- was was essentially regathered. Okay, uh, let me mention just one thing yeah. first. Between 638 and 1918, when we had that some form of Islamic dominance in the Middle East, the words Palestinian Palestine never appears. Okay, uh, and, that's important. And, yes. But yes, we had the first settlement of the Jews in Palestine uh, at Petitikva, 1878, 1897. The first Zionist Congress takes place. 1916, we have a tripartite agreement that creates the borders of the modern Middle East. 1918, we have the British mandate over Palestine that starts. 1922, Britain creates Transjordan as a home for the Arabs. 1937, we had the Peel Partition Plan of Palestine. 1939, we had the British restrict Jewish immigration. 47, we had the United Nations Partition Plan that was rejected by the Arabs. 1948, we had the Declaration of the Jewish State and an Arab-Israeli war. And a lot of these things we're going to go back over again in a few minutes. So I just want to just get the list out. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yep. 1950, the Jewish law of return was enacted and Jordan ceded the West Bank uh, to Israel. 1956, we had the Sinai War. 1967, we had the Six-Day War. 1973, we had the Yom Kippur War. 1979, the Egyptian-Israel peace agreement, and in 1987, we start the intifadas from the PLO and the organizations that are still continuing today. So let's let's pause there for a second, and one of the things that jumps out is, you know, 56, 67, 73, and uh, 87, there's this war, this constant unrest, uh, it's seemingly because Israel is there, and, you know... It's something that we have to, to get our head around in terms of the size of Israel and the way this all fits together. Jonathan, just read a, a quick quote from Yasser Arafat, because he was very much behind all of this intifada action uh, in the late 80s and the 90s and, and so forth. We plan to eliminate the state of Israel and establish a purely Palestinian state. We will make life unbearable for the Jews by psychological warfare and population explosion. We Palestinians will take over everything, including all of Jerusalem. So, Len, you know, when you're a small nation and you've got someone who says things that it has a relative amount of growing power, that would make you a little bit concerned, I would think, right? Oh, yeah, I think so. When uh, you're told that uh, our job is to wipe out you and your family you get you get you get the attention yes so you know and and that was the attitude and you know let's understand everybody looks at israel this this oh you know they shouldn't they shouldn't they shouldn't but where is the where is the looking at what happened with the 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 palestinian liberation organization and their stated objective of of wiping out a people we don't seem to get that Anyway, we'll come back to that as we go through who owns what in terms of land, who has rights to what. Uh, Len, let's just finish up this timeline. Okay. 
we jumped to 1989, two years later, we have the first mass exodus of Jews going back to the land, the modern one. And that was when the fall of the Soviet Union took place. Uh, in 1991, we had the Gulf War uh, with Iraq, Jordan, the PLO against Israel. In 1993 to 2000 were the Oslo Accords and trying to bring peace. 1994, Israel signed a peace treaty with Jordan. In 2000, another intifada began. 2001, of course, we had the terrorist attack on America uh, that showed it really didn't matter what we did. In 2003, we had the U.S. war against Iraq, the Aqaba summit on the roadmap to peace in the Middle East. And that was really what brought us up to ever since the last 15 years have been nothing but war and war in the Middle East in one form or another. And and Israel always seems to be involved in that. And people look at Israel and, and they seem to uh, condemn Israel. Now, I, I want to talk about, we've got just a couple, just like two minutes left in the segment, Len, but I want to mention a word to you. And I just give me your sense of what it is, when it started, and what it means. What What is Zionism? Well, Zionism was first used by an Austrian journalist back in 1886, and it was really derived from a biblical word that was used in Psalm 132, and it symbolized Jerusalem. But there's been a lot of misunderstanding because what it really means is just simply a return to the ancient and biblical homeland of the Jewish people. And that's really what Zionism is about. It encompasses the prayers, people to have a homeland, not just a return of the people, but also a return to the sovereignty of the land. And we've seen a lot of factions of Zionism. We saw Theodore Herzl, who brought on a political movement. We saw the practical side, which was uh, Jewish cultural revival. We saw the labor movement, which was the establishment of a socialist state. And then we saw the religious side, which envisioned a Jewish state governed by Jewish law. So Zionism is returning to the land. It's it's returning, and you had mentioned um, very uh, uh, derived, uh, you know, can be traced to, to Joseph in Egypt, way, 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 way back. And the point yeah. is that Israel, the land, is attached to the people the Jewish people. There is this attachment that is thousands of years old and for some reason always seems to get put on the uh, put, put aside when we talk about the conflicts in those areas. And you know, one of the things that people seem to um talk a lot about is well, you know, the the Palestinians have just as much right as as the Jews do. And I think that's probably something that we should get to uh talking about um talking about next. Um, so actually, let's let's do that because we're a little, little bit over time here. So there's a lot of history that brings much clearer perspective. It does. Now let's go further. Zionism was built on very ancient foundations of Judaism. What about the Palestinian historical foundation? Sometimes our questions and commentary can get complicated. That's part of having a thorough discussion. We'd love to hear your opinion. Contact us now at ChristianQuestions.com. Comment through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or our app. Just when you thought we may be figuring this out, let's get more complicated. 
With so much of world opinion set against Israel and the current issues dividing the land with the Palestinians, one would think that you'd be able to look at the claims of each side in the light of history and see dramatic overlaps in claiming the land. So let's test that. Let's look at the history of Palestine and see whose footprints are there. Now, folks, as we get into this particular segment, this does get a little bit more complicated and many, for, for many may even get a little bit more uh, emotional because, you know, well, it's mine, well, no, it's mine. Let's see if we can take a look and trace what actually happened historically. And folks, you know, we, we typically frame our podcasts with lots and lots and lots of scriptures and so forth. We thought it necessary today to look at things purely historically to begin with. Let's just look at historical facts that you can all go back and check and say, yep, that's true, yep, that's true, yep, that's true. So we can understand what actually happened because all of this stuff is written down and, and it gives us a sense of the reality that nobody seems to bring along when they're talking about current events. Before we get started with that, want to drop in on a soundbite from, again, from CBN.com, Made in Israel, in relation to their agriculture and some of the amazing things that have begun to develop in that nation over the last hundred years. It's been said that the modern state of Israel was born on the kibbutz. So it's only natural that much of Israel's innovation was born there as well. The kibbutz is the cornerstone in a lot of ways of a lot of things in Israeli society. People came back wanting to create a collective and an equal society. And these kibbutzim became a very, very effective way to defend the land, to start getting young people engaged in agriculture. Remember, Jews were forbidden in most countries of the world to actually own land or to work the land. Jews couldn't be farmers. To all of a sudden see a generation of Jews farming the land in a collective environment, it was, it was incredible. Before Israel even became a state, Jews by the thousands came to live there on communal farms. But when they arrived in the Promised Land, it wasn't exactly flowing with milk and honey. The coastal plains were swampy, the Galilee and the Judean hills were rocky, and the southern half of the country was mostly desert. And Len, those are some of the things that you had mentioned previously, and it gives us a sense that, especially from 1878 on, there was a lot of work done by a lot of individuals in a land that they were there, they were allowed to go there and settle. There wasn't anything they were doing illegally, and they, they transformed the barrenness of this land to something magnificent. So let's get down to it, Len. Palestine, Palestinians. Right. Talk to me about how that all works, who's who, what's what. Give, give us some history. Okay, I mentioned earlier from 638 to 1918, when we had the Islamic dominance, uh, Palestine was part, what was considered Palestine, was part of the Ottoman Empire, and it was under the rule of Turkey. Uh, hundreds of years it was under that rule. There was no such place as Palestine. There were no Palestinians with a distinct identity or any kind of private ownership of the land there even. Interestingly, there was a census taken back in 1882. And in that census, which you can see, uh, still available, less than 250,000 Arabs lived in the entire country. And they were mostly the Bedouins, what you consider as desert dwellers, those that move from place to place, shepherding flocks. 
and today they're known as the Bedouin, or the other was the Falahim, which were the migrant workers, which same as what we have here in the United States have moved from place to place to have uh, uh, to have work. So less than a quarter of a million were there, and the majority of the Arabs that were there had immigrated in the prior 70 years to work for, interestingly enough, the Zionist settlers. <laughs> who had come five years earlier. So <laughs> there, there really wasn't a presence of any single group there at any time between that, that 638 and 1918. It was really just part of the Turkish rule. So you had in that land, uh, you had um, Arabs, you had a lot of Bedouins, and you had Zionist quote-unquote settlers many of which employed a lot of these migrant workers because they had found a way to develop the land. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah, and they, because that there was a lot of work to be done when you hear that sound bite. Yeah. What they came and found those first Jewish settlers in 1878 that came and actually some came a little bit earlier than that. You know, it was swampland. And just as Mark Twain described it as a vast wasteland of nothing, that nobody would want. So after that period in the 1919, uh, there was a peace conference in Paris and there was an agreement between two of the, between the Zionist leader at that time, who was Kaim Wiseman and the Arab leader who was uh, Emir Faisal. They promoted the development of a Jewish homeland that would be separate from the part that would be claimed by, not by the Arab. There was, as I said, no Palestinian, no Palestinian name at that point. Now, that same year, we had the Muslim Christian Association that met in Jerusalem to choose representatives for that Paris Peace Conference. And here's the adopted resolution that came out of that. The the Paris Peace Conference you're talking about? Yes. Okay. They adopted the resolution that said this. We consider Palestine as part of Arab Syria, uh, as it has never been separated from it at any time. We are connected with it by national, religious, linguistic, natural, economic, and geographical bonds. That was the, that was what was prepared into this conference. Now, both of those events show that the Arabs did not view Palestine as having any independent status. Okay. All right. All right. Let me let me let me let me make sure that we get that point. So in you can look at history and you can clearly prove that there was no quote Palestinian according to these things happening in 1918-1919 and very emphatically the Arab community is saying there is no Palestine that doesn't exist. It's all part of the same big thing. Yeah, they considered it really southern Syria. Okay. At that so the point is, when we say, well, the Palestinians have an age, ages-long right to the land, there is no physical history to prove it, because no. the Arab countries themselves said they weren't, quote, Palestinians. They right. said that we'll was something... Go ahead. We'll see that even into the 30s. Okay. You know, that, that, said it again. 
Okay, so th- that's an important point. Now, um, you know, just in the interest of time, we're going to skip this next soundbite. It's kind of cool, okay. but uh, we just want it. We got to keep keep moving forward. So now let's get up into the 1930s. So again, folks, we're asking the question this segment: What about Palestinian historical foundation? And we're trying to ch- trace Palestinians. And thus far, in the early 1900s, what we're seeing is. There was no such thing as a Palestinian. They were Arabs, like you said, part of what they considered southern Syria. 1936 Peel Commission. What is that? Why is yeah, that important? Not too many people have heard of that, but the, you can find it on Wikipedia even if you look it up. But the Peel Commission, which was also called the Palestine Royal Commission, it was a British uh, commission of inquiry. And Lord Peel was the person that headed that commission. Thus, they, you know, the whoever heads the things always gets their name on it. I think that's why they kind of want to do it sometimes. <laughs> so there's something for you, Rick. If you want to have your name in infamy, just head some commission. Uh, no, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so he was appointed in 1936 to investigate the cause of unrest in what was called mandatory Palestine. That was administered by Britain at the time. And it followed this uh, uh, six-month-long strike that was going on there by the workers. And that Peel Commission ended up proposing the partition of Palestine. Mm-hmm. But here's what the local Arab leader said when that proposal was made. His name was Abdul Hadi. He said, there is no such country as Palestine. Palestine is a term the Zionists invented. There is no Palestine in the Bible. Palestine is alien to us. It is the Zionists who introduced it. Our country was for centuries part of Syria. Well, that doesn't (laughs) sound to me like there was any Palestine or Palestinian land at that time. So there was never a a non-Jewish Palestine. Um, But that that really was created later. uh, You know, the land was always part of the Ottoman Empire until it was freed by the British. And until that came out after 1918 and 19, we had non-Jewish Palestine has existed, but it was created in 1922 by the British, even though this Peel Commission wasn't. It was separated and it formed what is today known as Jordan. Okay. That was really the, the partition. So, so wait, 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 hang, hang on one second, Len. So, so what you're saying is that the, quote, Palestine created by the British was actually part of what we know as Jordan, not what we know as Israel. That's correct. In <laughs> fact, the majority of Jordan's population and army really are Palestinian. Most Palestinians in the West Bank today hold Jordanian passports. So why doesn't anybody know all of this? Folks, you got to understand that if you're looking at this and you've got this thing, it's the Palestinians versus the Jews, we say. But when you look at history, the Palestinians, by admission of several commissions and, and, and several members of leadership in the Arab community, say it didn't exist. And the only Palestine, if I get you right, Len, that existed was part of Jordan not part of Israel. Yes, King Hussein himself, 1981, he's, he was the grandson of Abdullah, said the truth is that Jordan is Palestine and Palestine is Jordan. Now, even Yasser Arafat said that. 
when he was a terrorist fighter back in 1991. If you look at what he was talking about in the Civil War, he said the same thing, that Jordan is Palestine. Palestine is Jordan. Okay, so now what about United Nations activity during that period of time? You went, you know, 1918, 1919, 1936, and so forth. Declarations of the United uh, United Nations uh, relating to Palestine back then. Well, there wasn't anything there, of course, because the United Nations wasn't around at that time. League of Nations. League had of a Nations, few right? Say, but uh, it really wasn't until 1947 right. that we had the United Nations. Then had a what they call the Special Committee on Palestine, and there were two parties involved with that: the Arab Higher Committee. And then also Menachem Begin, who was the chief at that time, was the chief of what was called the Irgun, which was the paramilitary organization that had been set up in 19, uh, in 1948 or 1947 to help defend the Jewish population. Today it would be known as the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, but that was the one before they were a state mm-hmm. that was set up, and Begin was in charge of that. Because what happened at that point was nobody wanted partition. The Jews and the Arabs, and again, we're not talking about Palestinians. We're talking about the Arabs who claimed that Syria, you know, that their land was Syria and that Jordan was Palestine. Neither one wanted to have partition. The Jews, of course, said that, you know, on biblical grounds, this is our homeland. And the Arabs said, if the land is partitioned, uh, we will go to war. And... David Ben-Gurion at the time said, there's no solution. We want the country to be ours, and they want the country to be theirs. So what happened, the General Assembly of the United Nations in November of 1947 voted to set up both a Jewish state and an Arab state, and they determined the borders. Jerusalem was to be an international zone. Now, the Jews accepted that, but the Arabs rejected it, and that was when we had, they were immediately attacked, the Jewish settlements, in all parts of what was then called Palestine. And that's really what's continued to this present day. So, what we have, again, back then, the United Nations said, okay, here's how we're going to do it, we're going to separate things out, and, and Jerusalem's going to be international, and the, and the Jews were accepting. And again, folks, look at the history and look at who accepted and was was following following the rules, you know, the, the way they were set out by the United Nations. And look who didn't. And 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 right after that, the Jews accepted it. But then you have these attacks upon Jewish settlements throughout that right. whole area. And Rick, just that that UN Resolution two forty two is like the most famous one. You ask any Israeli or anyone knows is you know follow the mandate, the resolution 242, they didn't keep that even. It goes all the way back to 47. And so, uh, you know, the offer was made to partition and it was rejected. So they had the opportunity for a homeland. Now, even though we established historically that there was were no, quote, Palestinians, but they were Arabs that were from Jordan, essentially. Um, and And even though... They, the opportunity was there. They simply said no. And we've had this argument that has raised its level of emotionalism and ratcheted it up 
uh, to the point today where we are really in a in a uh, in a difficult situation. So so present day, what what's the thinking now in in all in terms of all of this with the land and the divisions and so forth? Nobody disputes that the Arabs have lived in Palestine for many centuries. Okay, the controversial issue really revolves around uh, immigration and what they want uh, what they want for people and the, the positions on where that should go. 1915, uh, 1922, the wars, Arab population increased, but it's all around now immigration. That's really where the arguments take place. The revisions that were made in the land, the Palestinian Authority rejected the existence of the state of Israel at all, wanted a separate state, but you know, there's been no agreement on that. Uh, and today, it's really about uh, what happens. Israel declared its independence when we had the first Israeli-Arab war. It ended in the establishment of the Jewish state, and they were admitted to the United Nations as the 59th member in 1949. That's really the, the key element that ended up coming out of what happened with the UN resolution of 47. And they ended up uh, becoming that nation because they were attacked by those who during the negotiation said, no, we don't want any of this. And so you have them fight back and they win and, and they are recognized. And see, here's the thing, folks, let's understand. Israel is recognized as a sovereign nation. Very clearly, they, they declared their independence in 1948, and the UN um, recognized them in 1949. They are a nation. It's not debatable. You don't say, oh, you know, they don't belong there. They, were, they, they did all the things they were supposed to do, and now they have, they have been established. And, and Len, I, I want to jump ahead just for, well, maybe we shouldn't because we're out of time for this segment. <laughs> we'll get to it next segment. I want to talk about population. Um, within Israel and the nations around, because I think that's going to be a really important factor as we look at all this. So to just sum up this segment quickly, the bottom line is the idea of, quote, Palestinian, unquote, and those that are unseated have no place. When you look at history, it doesn't bear out what the common dialogue on the matter is. And you have to ask yourself, am I going to listen to what people are saying, or am I going to look at what is actually factual. This is complicated, but it is opening up in a much clearer light now. Now let's shine that light through scripture. We have looked at Israel historically in light of world opinion. What does the Bible say is coming next? We're constantly looking to our listeners for your feedback on our weekly episode discussions. Let us know if you'd like to hear more topics like this one or new topical suggestions. Keep your comments coming at ChristianQuestions.com and our Facebook page. We're also talking about topics in Reddit, and you should check us out helping answer questions on Quora. That's Q-U-O-R-A.com. We're engaging in combo everywhere. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now. In a way, all that we've talked about so far is kind of like uh, an introduction. What comes next really is the main story. God has set a plan in motion long ago on behalf of his human creation, and Israel has been, is, and will be one of the key linchpins of that plan. 
So let's begin with Israel right now in relation to prophecy. And so we want to take a look now where we're going to begin to get oh, more scriptural finally. Jonathan, I know you're taking a big Yay. sigh of relief. Yeah, like, <laughs> like let's get, let's get down to, to the, the scriptural aspect of things. But first, just a little bit more background. I want to go to a soundbite because it gives you a sense of where Israel is now. This is from How Powerful Is Israel from an organization called Test Tube. And it's about, well, I'll just let you listen to what they say uh, Israel is, is becoming and has been famous for. So how does Israel fare economically? Although they're on the smaller side, Israel's GDP is around $300 billion, ranking them 37th worldwide and 19th in the UN's Human Development Index. Israel is a high-tech startup hotspot. It's nicknamed Silicon Wadi after the Arabic word for valley. Some have pointed to their cultural emphasis on education and disproportionate numbers of scientists and engineers as the leading cause for the ongoing technological boom. Many wealthy American figureheads have praised and invested in Israel's economy as well, including Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. Israel is also home to one of the largest diamond-cutting and polishing industries, although the land itself is low on natural resources. Okay, so I, I like the the uh, the uh, Silicon Wadi. I think that's pretty cool. You know, this tiny little nation, like you said earlier. You know, if you showed a map of the world, you'd have to put a big arrow to show you where Israel is. And yet, it is a world leader in technology. How did that happen? It happened because you have a people that applied themselves in in, in a very very big way for a very very long time, whether others liked it or not. So so Len. Israel's biblical positions, what does the future hold? Where are we now in terms of people and so forth? Well, after the Holocaust, we all know with the Holocaust, uh, there was a great destruction of the Jewish people. But after the Holocaust, we've only had two major centers of Jewish life, uh, America and Israel. Uh, the U.S. Populate, Jewish population in 1990 was about five and a half million, uh, 5.2 million in 2000. And Israel's population passed 5.6 million Jewish people in 2006. And that was the, interestingly enough, the first time since AD 135, one of the dates I mentioned earlier, that now there are more Jews in Israel than in any other single country in the world. Interestingly enough, Rick, if uh, estimated that if there were not a Holocaust, the estimated Jewish population of the world would be about 26 million, but it's only 14 million today, about 14 and a half million. But since 1948, that important date, when Israel became a country, almost 3 million Jews have immigrated from all over the world and that was, uh, interestingly enough, a fulfillment, I believe, of a scripture in Jeremiah 23, 7. Uh, I don't think we had that on the list. No, but not Jeremiah, at this point. Go ahead. But Jeremiah 23, 7, uh, God said that, that, the, that when he regathered, when he brought Israel together again, it would make the exodus basically look small. Hmm. And we can estimate about 2 million people came out of the Exodus, out of Egypt in the Exodus. So the fact that more than that came, have immigrated to Israel, I think is very biblically significant. Okay. 10-6 is another one that gives us a 
uh, really key event uh, about their regathering. All right, Jonathan, why don't we actually read that? Zechariah 10.6. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them back because I have had compassion on them, and they will be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Okay, so, well, just quick comment on that, Len, and then I've got another question for you. Okay, well, I think that's an indication, again, of the regathering of Israel, the fact that God would bring them, bring them back. Well, bring them back where? Bring them back to where they were before. And just like it said, and I mentioned this Jeremiah 23, 7, where it says, days are coming when they won't say anymore, as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the Northland and from all the countries where I had driven them, then they will live on their own soil. Well, that's pretty explicit. Yeah. yeah. God was going to bring them back to the land of Israel. And that's exactly what's happened. Okay. Uh, so, so let me, let me ask you then, what about anti-Semitism? You know, we hear it, uh, we hear about it. Uh, it seems like it's on the rise. What's what's happening with anti-Semitism uh, around the world? Since the '90s, the mid 1990s, there's been a, a steady stream of uh, South African Jews, American Jews, French Jews have either made what's called Aliyah, which is the Hebrew word for ascent, or purchased property in Israel because they're worried about rising anti-Semitism. And uh, since the global financial crisis in 2008, we've seen a lot more uh, coming, going to Israel from the West. Uh, and we had over the last, the highest in 36 years that's happened since 2008. So we're seeing anti-Semitism rise all over the world. And more so as other places get more uh, of the Muslim population, the animosity between Muslims and Jews. And we, so we see a lot more immigrating. Okay. Dozens of countries now host just a very small Jewish population. Israel and the U.S. between the two countries uh, has 83% of the world Jewry. 98 countries hold the other 17. Okay. So let's get, let's get a little more specific on that because, you know, um, and actually, uh, I want to, Jonathan, I want you to read this next quote. This next quote is from Norman Finkelstein. Uh, Norman Finkelstein, born in 1953, he's an American political scientist, activist, professor, and author. His parents were Jewish Holocaust survivors. He is very, very, very critical of Israel, as you will see by his quote. I want to put this quote on the table, Len, and then let's talk about um, diversity, if you will, in the Middle East. Go ahead, Jonathan. The Zionist indeed learnt well from the Nazis, so well that it seems that their morally repugnant treatment of the Palestinians and their attempts to destroy Palestinian society within Israel and the occupied territories reveals them as basically Nazis with beards and black hats. Len, that's a pretty awfully amazingly powerful statement that, you know, from somebody who is Jewish is anti-Semitic. <laughs> now, 
let, let, let's take a look at that. You, you had mentioned that, you know, um, most of the Jewish population is in the United States and in Israel. Talk to me just a little bit, just a few numbers about some of the countries that surround Israel. First of all, how many Arabs are citizens within the nation of Israel right now, approximately? Uh, within the nation of Israel, Arab citizens, all those that would be, I think, outside of the Jewish part of the population, which would be probably four, three or four million that would be Israeli citizens that live and work in Israel. And, but outside of that, Israel has very little representation in the Arab countries of citizens. So uh, go ahead, go ahead. United Arab Emirates is the biggest. And you might say, oh, they must have a few thousand. Well, 500 Oops. is the estimate. Uh, Egypt, which Israel made a peace treaty with uh, some years ago, you had 80,000 Jews in the early part of the century. Today, it's estimated there are 40 to 50. That's five in, zero. In the whole country of Egypt? The whole country, yes. As that citizens. citizens that country. So you get outside of that, Behran is the other one. It's estimated that there are only about 36 Jewish <laughs> citizens there. So, so here, here's the little. thing. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Here, here's the thing. Within Israel, you've got over a million, quote, Palestinians, Arabs, who are citizens. And Len, they have jobs, they work in government, correct? Yep. They have jobs just like everybody else. So when we and talk about they're diversity. Staying, they're staying there, yes. They right. want to stay there. Right, because they've, they've got a good life and they participate in the organization of that nation. So when people come across and, and lean on Israel with such uh, ferocity, you got to ask, what about the nations around them? Why isn't there any kind of diversity in those nations? And how come we don't get on them to say, hey, that's really not very fair? I mean, it's, we, we look at this and we get totally confused. So... Yeah. Let's let's go. I just want to touch on a, a few more scriptures here for this segment. Uh, I, I jumped over, didn't mean to, but jumped over Zechariah 12, verses 2 and 3. So, Jonathan, let's go to Zechariah 12, 2 and 3, Len, a quick comment on that, and then we're going to go down to Ezekiel next. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will become about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. So, Len, what, uh, is this a warning? Uh, <laughs> well, it is a warning. The fact that God says he is the one that's behind the scenes doing this. And when it says I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone, it really is. It's a heavy stone for them if they don't support Israel, because if they don't, it says they will be injured. And we're seeing that those that God had said, those that bless you, I will bless, and those that curse you, I will curse. But all the nations of the earth gathered against it. I think we see that with something like the United Nations, for example. They are definitely anti-Israel. Does this represent all the nations of the earth? I think, yes, it does. All the the meaningful nations are part of that, and all are anti-Israel. So I think we're seeing this scripture fulfilled in our day. Um, so, okay, let, let's go down now to um, 
uh, Ezekiel eleven seventeen, because this is a, a again about um, the prophecies that God gives to put our understanding of what Israel means in in a proper context. Ezekiel eleven sixteen and seventeen. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I had removed them far away among the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. So, Len, it almost sounds like God is, you know, in a sense, repeating himself to different prophets. He is certainly repeating himself because he wants to verify through every prophet that this land belongs to Israel. And when he says he would give that to Abraham and his descendants, we can track that back through Scripture that the descendants he's giving it to were those that were descended from Isaac. And his son Isaac, and that really is tracked to the to the Jewish people today, right? And you know, you established that in that timeline we did earlier, where you had 1500 BC is when Israel establishes itself in that land. 1500 years before Christ, and then you have the Muslim religion beginning in 631 AD. So, I mean, you've got a 2,000-year span, 2,000-year head start, I guess, you know, if you want to be claiming something. And it's, a, it's, it's pretty dramatic from a scriptural standpoint. Yeah. Rick, there's an important scripture in Amos 9, 14, and 15. Okay. All right. Let's, let's go to that. Jonathan, why don't you read that one? Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. Go ahead, Len. Rick, the reason this is important, I think, because when that land was given to Israel, is when it divided up after the United Nations, the Jewish state, uh, 60% of the land that was given to the Jewish state was Negev Desert, and it contained nothing but Bedouins. And they have transformed that land into, as we heard in that previous soundbite, places where basically every flower, every uh, plant is productive and doing things that no one else could do. So this, to me, if this scripture has been fulfilled in our very day, by the activity that's happened since 1948 with Israel. And again, you can't overstate that because when we remember the soundbite from Mark Twain back in 1867 saying the place is just a it's just a a desert barren land where nothing grows toward any good end. And right. yet when you go there and you see the incredible and, – and we had things that we, we had to skip over in, in the interest of time – but the incredible agriculture that they have created out of – and you say, how did they do that? And it was, it was through blood, sweat, tears and, and technology and innovation and never giving up on making the land be able to produce. It's just an incredible, miraculous look at, at development there. 
right? And you got to remember the last part of that scripture says they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them. So Israel will stay and they will survive and they will prosper in that land. Okay. All right. Good. And um, Len, we're, we're about out of time for this segment, but I want to touch on just, we won't read it, but Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 3 to 11, and we were talking about this before the podcast, carries another important point in terms of prophecy. Just zero in on that point really, really quickly, and then we got to wrap up this segment. Sure. I think the important thing is if one reads that Jeremiah 33 to 11, they will see that this regathering of the people and rebuilding of the land is not done in a peaceful manner. It is done likened to a woman with childbirth, where it goes in spasms and peace, spasms of pain and peace. And that's exactly what we've seen in, since 1878 when Israel went back. We have spasms of peace, and then we have spasms of war. And that's going to continue until God says it's done. So what we're seeing then is really no surprise when it comes to looking at Israel. And right. when, when we look at the anti-Semitism, even though we get frustrated by it, it really should come as no surprise because the prophecies actually tell us these are the things that are going to happen. And it's all part of God's big plan. So really, we've got to start to try to, 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 to wrap this thing up in, in a big way. Israel's role up to this point has been unmistakably in the hands of God himself. It absolutely has. Now, what will come of God's overruling on Israel's behalf through all of the historical and present turmoil? We're uncovering the truth scripture by scripture while gathering information from across today's media landscape with our vast CQ team of contributors. We want to hear from you, our listeners, for more contribution to our conversations. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com or message us through the Christian Questions app and our producers may read your comments over the air. Let's continue working through our topic with all our tools. We're reviewing the evidence. Now let's put it together. Looking back on our conversation, we can certainly see the pattern of trouble that's followed Israel. The important thread that ties all of these events together is Israel's significant place in God's overall plan. Now let's look at how prophecy describes their place and the results of their ages-long turmoil. And so, Len, as we begin to wrap this up for this last segment, um, you know, it's going to be a lot, a lot more of, of a scriptural viewpoint of what's happening in Israel today. And, and just to quickly sum up before we, we get you back on to uh, specific items— we, we we began by looking at the current events, uh, the the United States establishing an embassy in Jerusalem, and the un and the unrest that was unfolding around that, and the misrepresentations that were unfolding around that, and everybody saying, "Oh, Israel shouldn't be doing this." And then you've got four, five, six, however many other countries putting their embassies in Jerusalem, and nobody says a thing. So you know you got to wonder about that. Uh, you, we looked at the timeline that said Israel was established in the nation of Israel. 1,500 years before Christ, and has had a basic presence ever since, albeit at times very, 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 very small. Uh, We looked at the fact that the idea of Palestinian was not uh, an Arab presence in Israel, but in fact, according to Arab documentation, was part of Jordan, not Israel. We looked at the 
willingness of Israel to to go along with the rules, if you will, and and their continuance of getting attacked and beaten down and beaten back, and yet becoming victorious and building over time since 1948 a nation to be reckoned with, one of the strongest military powers in in the world, uh, agriculturally uh, very very. Uh, Far ahead of most countries, uh, techno- technologically a, a a fertile ground for for invention and so forth. So that brings us to God, where where we are now. And first thing is, God has not. We we can see very clearly, God has not abandoned Israel, but He has certainly let them go through a lot of trouble. So, Jonathan, let's go to Isaiah fifty one three. Then, Len, you can give us some comments on that. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And her wilderness he will make like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and sound of a melody. Len? I think here, Rick, you can see, even though someone might say Israel is not a religious nation, there is a religious tenor in that nation. There's no question about it. And as you said, God has not abandoned Israel, and we're seeing that wilderness that was there with the desert, 60% of the land is blooming in the scripture that says the desert will blossom as a rose and the garden of the Lord. We're starting to see that happen. Israel has plans to bring about every flower that is mentioned in the Bible and to bring back every animal that's mentioned in the Bible. So they are definitely uh, focused, even though they have not yet completely turned back to God they are certainly focused that way. All right, they're focused that way, and you can see God's hand in, in, their, in their lives. Jeremiah thirty two forty two. For thus says the Lord, Just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. Len? I think here we know of the disasters. We know of all the things that have happened to them. But God says he's going to bring good at just starting, and he's not talking about just today. But there's a place for Israel that's going to be there for all eternity, and that, that they're going to play a big role in God's plan for the future for the entire world. So God brings disaster, and you, and you, and you say, okay, well, why does God have to do it that way? And, you know, <laughs> subject for another day, it is dealing with the world of sin. That's how God works us through the world of sin to help us understand righteousness versus evil. Uh, and, you know, Israel, being God's chosen people from early on, had that experience more than anybody. Generations and generations and generations of that experience. Um, uh, they had go ahead. that old saying, no pain, no gain. Yeah. Uh, but they, they have great gain, but they've gone through a great deal of pain. And when you're in training, that's what's happened. I believe God is training the nation of Israel for a special role. You know, and that's an interesting point. You know, God is training them for a special role. And and sometimes God in his overruling providence can put us in a position for training us for something. And we have no idea what it is that we were being trained for. I know in my personal life, I can look back and see how the Lord did certain things with me to train me frankly, for doing podcasting and, and, and radio for 20 years in relation to the gospel had no idea that the two were connected, but when the opportunity arose, the training had already been in place. God works ahead. 
and with Israel, it is no difference. So let's, Len, let's go to the role in bringing the world to God that Israel plays. Jonathan, Jeremiah three seventeen and 18. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. Nor will they walk any more after their stubbornness or their evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north and to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. Okay, Len, what are we talking about here? Here we see a beautiful picture of what Jerusalem's role is to be in the future. At some point in the future, that is going to be the focal point of the world for teaching the world about God and about uh, uh, about his ways and the uh, nation of Israel is to have a big role in that, and they will learn why they have gone through all these things, turn back, turn as a nation to God. And it says that they will no longer be divided amongst themselves. They will be uh, under a leadership that will point them in a direction back to God. You know, and it's interesting also in verse 18, it says, in those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel. So you've got the even the divisions within Israel, God is saying, are going to be dissolved and things are going to be brought back together. Uh, and they're going to be there from everywhere to do that. And notice it says he calls Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And it will be a special place. So, so Jerusalem does play a significant role in world history as well as in the history of Israel. Zechariah 8, 2 and 3, another scripture on the role of uh, Israel in bringing the world to God. Go ahead, Jonathan. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the Holy Mountain. That sounds pretty impressive, Len. <laughs> We're dealing here with the fact that Jerusalem does not necessarily belong to Israel. It belongs to God. And so that's what we see, that God will, through, through Jerusalem and through the nation of Israel, uh, bring peace, true peace to the world. That's amazing. When you think about bringing true peace to the world, and you, you ask somebody, so where is the true peace? You, you know, do, do an on-the-street interview with people and say, where, if true peace was to come to the world, where would it come through? I don't think anybody would say Jerusalem. I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> because it just does not seem to fit in the relationship to what we see. But when we have Bible prophecy, it really gives us a sense of this can really happen. Let's just watch how God unfolds things. Okay, so now, I mean, so, so the role that Israel plays is utterly significant. And you made a really important point, Len, by saying, you know, Jerusalem isn't Israel's, it's God's. And th that's why all of this will come together. But it's not going to happen uh, until the entire world turns against Israel. So, you know, you, we're, we're painting that glorious picture, and then we got to ruin it with facts about prophecy. Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 14 to 16. Jonathan, go ahead. Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel are living securely, 
Will you not know it? You will come from your places out of the remotest parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembled and mighty army. And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. Okay, Len, that gets pretty deep there, but uh, give, us, give us a quick explanation if you can. Rick, this is an amazing scripture because it really lays out God's peace plan for the Middle East. And his peace plan is at some point in the future, we think it's a hotbed now in the Middle East with Israel. This is, uh, Ezekiel is a prophet that describes not just the regathering of Israel, but after they're totally regathered there, uh, there is uh, a big turn against Israel, and it's there that God makes known to the world who he is. And it's through that when he says at the very end there, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified before your eyes. God will make it very manifest that he exists, and not only that he exists, but that he is in control. And this is the final battle that will take place in the current uh, world of sin, I believe, before God inaugurates his kingdom, which will be centered in Israel with the capital of Jerusalem. Okay, all right, so now we're getting serious in terms of, you know, you're talking about a final battle, a big deal. Zechariah 14, verse 2 actually builds upon that. So, uh, Len, let's go to that. Jonathan, go ahead. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. So, Len, that does not sound good at all. No, and it does. It I think it indicates to us that somehow, as powerful as, as Israel is, when it comes to the point where all the nations are gathered against it, the only outcome, favorable outcome, will be for them is if God intervenes. And I think that is exactly what we're being told here. This is a point which God intervenes to prevent Israel from being destroyed and making himself known to all the nations of the earth. Okay, and one other quick scripture that kind of follows that thought of once God intervenes, Uh, And then God is known to the nations of the earth. Zechariah 8.23 Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So, Lynn, that sounds like, you know, that's a positive end. Yeah, that's that's right. This is not about destruction, Rick. It's about blessing. And that's really what it's meant to be. Israel is there to eventually be a blessing to the entire world. Many look at her as a blessing today with all the uh, instruments that they've created, all the science that they've created. But the real blessing of Israel is to teach the world about God. And that's really what this scripture is saying. Israel will turn to God and they will be God's nation and his his avenue for people learning about who he is and what he has in store for them. 
Okay. And that when everyone says they will come because God is with them. All right, Lynn, we're almost out of time. What is the proper role of Christians now? What do you believe is the proper role of Christians toward Israel right now? Right now, I think our our proper role is to look at Israel and pray for the peace of Israel, because it's that peace eventually that God brings that will bring about uh, God's intervention in the world's affairs and eradicate this world of sin and bring about blessings for all mankind. So Isaiah 41 to 2 is a scripture, I think, that's aimed at all Christians today. Okay, and very quickly, uh, just Jonathan, verse 1, because we don't have a lot of time. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Okay, and it goes on about speaking comfortably toward Jerusalem. So that's Len, what we can do. Right, okay, so that's the role of, of, of a Christian now. So, Len, we've got about 30 seconds for you to give a wrap-up uh, about this conversation about Israel today. Well, Israel, a land that has gone through so many things, uh, we have to learn to appreciate what they have, what they've been, and what they are to be in the future. And if we can do that as Christians and pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we will be doing God's will. And that's really what he wants us to do. Not to convert Israel to Christianity, but to pray for them and their role in teaching the world about God in the future. Len, thanks so much for being with us today. It's really been a blessing to have you here with the history and the statistics and and looking at it from a whole different perspective and saying history shows us what we have always thought, but it's right there. Look it up. Thanks, Len. We appreciate it. Thanks, Rick. Folks, this is an important subject because in our lives, in our in our experiences, we come across the difficulties with Israel on a regular daily basis. Take heart in biblical prophecy. Take heart in historical facts that Israel belongs where they are. They are God's chosen people and are going to help to usher in the kingdom of God for all of the world. For Jonathan, Rick, and Len and Christian Questions, we hope you enjoyed being with us today as we talked about Israel, the thorn in the side of the world, and the blessing, the blesser of the world to come. Think about it. Folks, we want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Rate us, review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, Is the Hell of Christian Tradition Taught in the Bible? Part 2. Talk to you then.